Hello again, you fabulous misanthropes. I'm so glad you found the Grinning Idiot podcast again and are ready to peel your ears off and listen for a bit. What does peel your ears off mean? That just came out of my head. I have no idea. I'm still glad you're here, even if my language is doing something strange. I'm Jay Floyd. I'm the host of the Grinning Idiot podcast, and tonight... It's night where I am. I'll quit saying that at some point, but not tonight. (laughs) Tonight, uh, here's what I want to talk about. Once upon a time, there was a sexual orientation. Tonight, we're going to talk about gay men and crystal meth addiction, the recovery from crystal meth addiction, and where that leaves gay men. I'm going to try to have a conversation with a couple of friends of mine who are also in recovery. I've been sober for 23 years. Crystal meth took about four years of my life for me in my 20s. Um, and I, I, I got a couple of friends to come over and, and talk with me about their experience uh, so we could compare and contrast them. Because there's a startling piece of information that I found out. I mentioned it in the, in the conversation with these two guys, Greg and Matt. Um, I saw an article in the New York Times that said the, that overdoses from crystal meth have, have actually been increasing because the power of the actual substance has been amplified, apparently, in the last few years. And people are overdosing like crazy. It's overtaking opioids in some places. And it leaves me wondering, why are people still so drawn to it? What is it? Because you don't do drugs unless you're in pain. You just don't. Um, you don't do it unless you're escaping something in the real world. And, um, and gay men have a very specific relationship with this drug. It was, uh, it was a drug in search of an audience, and it found the perfect one. Because we carry with us, uh, apparently even today, with acceptance levels being so much higher than they were when I grew up in the 70s. Uh, even today... It, it, there's this deep internalized homophobia that we carry around with us because the world may or may not turn on us at any moment, I guess would be the best way to put it. And meth floods your brain with so many feel-good chemicals all at once that you feel okay in the world for a minute and you get to express yourself sexually in a way that you probably can't do when you aren't loaded at first at least. And that, that complete evacuation of shame. Uh, I've always joked that it does sort of lead you to the most shameful behavior of your life. (laughs) At least it did for me. Um, But uh, it is very addictive. And it certainly found the perfect hosts in the gay community. So let's get into the conversation I had with two good friends of mine who have also recovered. Now, if you're listening to this, and you're a gay person with a problem, you can email us at howdy at grinningidiot.com and we can tell you how to start your road to recovery. If you're listening to this because you're a straight person and you wonder exactly what the hell's going on with gay men, this might give you a little bit of insight because I think my friends were, were pretty open with me uh, in their the retelling of their experiences. Or if you're just in the mood to hear some deviant talk that would be something that we can provide here. Um, when I say deviant, by the way, when I say that, it's a compliment. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, here's my conversation with two good friends, uh, Greg and Matt. Take it away. 
welcome to the Grinning Idiot Podcast. This is a special um, edition about gay men fucking and drugs. Mm-hmm. Ooh. Ooh. Okay. Um, I have two guests with me this evening. Both are good friends of mine. Um, we all have something in common. We have a few things in common. We're all men. We're all gay. I mean, so gay. So gay. Hello. I think... <laughs> Hi. 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 Um, and uh, we all have recovered from a problem with crystal meth. Um, I wanted to get everybody together tonight to talk about their experience with their sexuality in relation to drugs and the recovery from those things and then from drugs and then getting back into trying to find a healthy sexual expression in our lives. Um, I know it's something I still struggle with. I'm 53 and I've been sober for 23 years and it's something that I'm still working on. And I find it a really interesting conversation. Guys, when you came over tonight, I showed both of you this article that was in the New York Times today that was talking about how meth right now is incredibly potent. Like the actual substance has become so potent that it's starting, the deaths from meth abuse are starting to eclipse opioid abuse in places like I think it's at Oklahoma. Um, and it's, it's sort of surprising to me how much it still has a hold. And then I read on the, um, the uh, NIM, what's the, the National Institutes of Mental Health. Yeah. Thank you. I let, read on their website earlier today because I was just sort of brushing up on my, my thoughts about this subject. And they, it said that gay men are three quarters more likely to fall into substance abuse than their heterosexual equivalents. Um, and, you know, if you say that to any gay man, I think most of them at this point, now maybe it's just because we've been in the recovery community a long time and we have dialogues about these things, but I think most of them would immediately go, oh yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> I totally understand why gay men get fucked up so much. That makes sense to me. I know that for me, I'll tell my story, and then if you guys want to chime in with yours, you're welcome to. Um, you know, I grew up in the South. I was, it was the 70s. I knew it wasn't okay to be gay. Um, literally, the guy who painted the house across the street from me was openly in the KKK, and people could talk about it. I couldn't talk about who I wanted to kiss for fear that it would bring an end to my life, uh, either, well, maybe literally. And, um, and so that's where my sexuality sort of, my, it, it tried to, you know, form under those conditions. Um, and, you know, and then right as I was coming out in 1984, AIDS had just gotten a name and I was convinced, oh, well, now it kills you. I felt like I got really duped to coming out right before it became fatal, uh, you know, and, and um, so that got swirled into my, my sexual expressions. And I will tell you, before I even had a substance abuse issue, I would always uh, need to be loaded to even go to a gay bar to even walk in the door. Did either, did, did either of you have a, a hard time before you got into an addiction space? Did you have a hard time going into gay environments without getting fucked up? One time, the place where I was working, the boss, this person he'd known was coming to work there. And he said, oh, you'll like so-and-so, and, -so, and he, he's, in, he's in AA or whatever he was in. And I was like, you know, had, didn't want to hear any of that. So I just, you know, the reflexive eye roll, and I remember having a bit of a conversation with this guy. We weren't friends or anything. And I remember him asking me a question. He said, when was the last time you had sex that you weren't drunk? Mm. The last time. I didn't time. have an answer. I know. I wouldn't I be didn't there. have an answer. I wouldn't And it really there. made me think. It really made me think. And I was like, uh, never. Now, caveat. 
I've been drink. I had been drinking since the age of eleven and a half. I didn't go to Ralph's without having a drink. That's, <laughs> that's so, a grocery store to those of you. You know, who don't yeah. Know. I mean, to the grocery store without having a drink. I didn't go get my hair cut without having a drink. I didn't really. If I wasn't at work, I kind of just drank. It's what I did. Okay. So, but I was very much a part of the bar culture back in the eighties. Very but, much a part of the. Bar but culture. would you pre-drink before you went to the bar? Oh, of course. Yeah, that's yeah, my I favorite drinking. Drinking, getting ready to go out drinking. Yeah. <laughs> But there was the three, and I used to actually drink on the way to the bar. I would put a beer bottle in my leather jacket on the motorcycle because it was about five minutes from my place to the spike, and that's an awful lot of wasted time. Okay, all right. Now, do you do you pair that drinking habit <clears throat> with your sexuality, or was it social anxiety? I honestly, I can't. That is something that I can't answer, but I do recall when I came out, when I came out when I was liberated from parents' school, all of that stuff. I remember that I did have a bit of anger and I started to read about, you know, I'm the adopted kid that doesn't look anything like his family that he was adopted sure. into. So I was always looking for a tribe or a whatever it was and I started reading of gay history and realized that a lot of gay history had been whitewashed, edited out, deleted, ignored. And I remember that anger. I remember reading mm. books and all that stuff and thinking, this has been, this is my history and it's been, it's, it's been edited. It's, it's been, been just been excised. Edited or excised, mm. exactly, from the conversation from the script. Because we I, weren't relevant. We right. didn't get to have a history because that would be promoting the idea that being a gay person was okay and we couldn't have that. And that we had, we had always been there. We had always been there. Oh yeah, uh, you, from you time mean, always existed. In always society. existed. Yeah. yeah, always existed. Where do you think? Where do I think the drapes came from? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I Maddie, mean, who yeah. sold them? Who masked them to the carpet? Thank you. Hello. You know what I'm saying, <laughs> um, Maddie. So, did you find Maddie? By the way, is the the whippersnapper among us? <laughs> Greg and I are two old farts, and Maddie's not so whippersnapper anymore. Uh, <laughs> they're pretty whippersnappery to us. Um, anybody who doesn't make noises when they rise from the floor, <laughs> you'd be surprised. <laughs> you'd be surprised. Um, um, so, did you find before you got into the the attic like space? Did you find that you had to, you know, socially lubricate yourself to go into gay environments? I didn't think about it in those terms, though. Yes, the answer is yes, but you didn't think about it. Exactly, and I think that. It's interesting because even when I started going out to bars um, when I was 21, so in, you know, in late, the late 2000s, I didn't go with the intention of, um, I guess, I guess I'll put it this way. My reference to gay culture, to a gay social scene, was only, even in late, the late 2000s, was bars. Hmm. You know, there to me, I had had no, um, <clears throat> I had had no like uh, idea of different groups of gay men doing things outside the context of a bar. I wonder, I wonder if people who aren't addicts in their blood, I wonder if they have the same story because I thought of places that you drank as the gay congre- congregation zones. It would not have crossed my mind that there were gay rugby teams, that there were, you know. Uh, gay book clubs, there were gay chess clubs. That would not have crossed my mind. But you know what's even interesting is that as far as I know, and I'm speaking from limited knowledge, so take this with a grain of salt, but even those, uh, some of those groups that you're saying, at least here in Los Angeles, those groups are sponsored by bars. 
Like oh, yeah, that's right. You know, and then after the games, of logos for like vodka. And then after the games, they go to the bars and get, you know, and get drunk. But, but uh, so there's there seems to always be this tie-in, and I don't know historically speaking, you know, that's you know, we're talking about like the speakeasies and the, you know, the places that <clears throat> that gay men had to go to, to be, to find acceptance, you know, and they weren't going to find acceptance. Um, you know, in any place else than, you know, being with each other in a very clandestine situation, you know, in parks and, and you know, we were talking about The Velvet Rage earlier and that's some the of books, what the we're Vel- There's about, a book yeah. called The Velvet Rage to anyone listening who might be interested in exploring these issues further. There's a really, really good book that I highly recommend called The Velvet Rage. Look it up. Um, it's very instructional, uh, instructive and it it, uh, it's very honest, I think. I think it's a very, I don't remember ever calling bullshit on it. Usually when I read books like that, there's somewhere in it that I want to call bullshit. And I don't remember that happening in that book at all. Um, now, when I, when I look back, I, I just remember like, but this is before I ever got into to heavier drugs like meth. Um, I remember I wanted to hit on somebody at a bar in the East Village. I was, uh, I was going to MIU. Uh, it was called Rock and Roll Fag Bar. It was, I love this bar. Um, and there was this big, Italian, probably straight mobster guy <laughs> who I wanted a little something something from. And um, I had to drink myself into almost oblivion to try to approach him. I think I don't think that's social anxiety. I think that is internalized homophobia. Mm. And alcohol didn't do for me what eventually meth did. Um, I just remember going home and having horrible, a horrible, it was, it was definitely straight guy sex. It was, you do me and then I'm going to leave. Um, <laughs> that's just what happened. Um, okay, no, it's not no, delicious. I'm kidding. Okay. <laughs> I'm being sarcastic. It is so not the goal. Um, How about I just leave? <laughs> do yourself. <laughs> wow. Do yourself. Um, he's salty in his old age. Um, the, uh, crispy, crispy. What I noticed once I got into meth, which, you know, for the first year that I did it, it was like once a month, and was, and now I know the science behind it, it really did do what I jokingly talked about it doing. It was like, you know, it, it obliterates internalized homophobia in five minutes. And what happens when you do an amphetamine like that is your brain explodes with endorphins and serotonin, all the feel-good chemicals. And when you have that much chemical insistence that everything is okay, there's no room for internalized homophobia. And so then you can become sexually free for the first time in your flippin' life. Greg, when you said earlier that you don't think you ever had sober sex, I don't think I ever had sex sober. No. It was Not an interesting until I got question. Sober. I, 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 just, had, I don't think it ever happened. I'd never even thought about it before. You know, I'd never even thought about but it. But then before. comes this devil drug that solves everything. That found its perfect host within a gay community. Young, damaged community. Hypersexual. Mm-hmm. People dying to express themselves sexually exactly. and just wanting a little push into this is okay. But people who are also already hypersexual, who maybe had not given themselves permission, and maybe maybe for some people it did give themselves permission. I know that, I mean, I don't know what, whether it's endorphins, because I know the effect that crystal meth had on me is not the same effect it had on other people. Other people will clean the house. They'll you scour, built one. Yeah, I built one. <laughs> they, they scour the alleys for broken televisions and bring them home. For some reason, that drug connected, connected immediately to the sex bone. 
That's not a euphemism. <laughs> no, 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 no. The ankle bone's connected to the football. You know, you know what I mean. You know what I mean. I, and I don't know why. I don't know why. It just literally went. It went right there. So like, okay, well, uh, this is the, what I want to do. Some of the stuff I was refreshing myself with this morning talks about it being um, when your brain goes into the state that I'm talking about, it is very procreative. Yeah. It is very sexual mm. to be that okay. Yeah. Of course, the cruel punchline is you're in quotes okay for about six hours, and then there's the rest of the week yeah. where you're either chasing it or coming down off of it, and it destroys your life, your health very quickly. Uh, saw this article in the New York Times today that people are ODing on it now. That wasn't happening so much 23 years ago when I got sober. But I want to take it back. I want to take it back to the sex because what I really want to focus on uh, <clears throat> is where are we in our openness with sec our sexuality? Where are we in the healing of our sexuality? Um, as, as a community, are we healing or was our acceptance really skin deep? Like getting marriage equality, I, I can tell that created a shift in me a little bit. I don't feel healed about it. You know, I had a sexual tryst a, a few weeks ago, and I was more present than I used to be, but I still had a giant cumbersome dialogue going in my head. I don't know if it was homophobia or not. That might be starting to heal, but you know, I'm 53. I would like to know that gay men could heal at 30. I would like to know that mm -hmm. gay men could heal at 25. You know, that could find their genuine sexual self and be okay with it earlier. That this drug is still so popular in the community means that's not happening as it should. Or this drug would not be so fucking popular. Thoughts, anybody? I don't know, I definitely relate to that. I, I like to think that, because I've had periods of long, long, longer term sobriety before, I learned about sober sex. And so it was possible for me to get back there. It was not possible for me in the first year of recovery this time uh, to really get back there. What However, is sober sex like for you now? Sober sex for me now depends on how, who I'm having it with. Depends on who I'm having it with. I can tell you that I've had some incredible sober sex that was just sex um, and it was wonderful. And I can tell you that I've had sex with somebody that I've been in a relationship with and it's a different thing, it's a different animal. And that's one thing that I always loved about, because I remember, believe it or not, even when I was doing a lot of meth, having conversations with guys and saying, you know, I'm sure I have internalized homophobia somewhere, but I would say I love being gay. I love the freedom that it affords me. You know, I, mm -hmm. I love it. I love hearing I that. love it. And what freedom? Go deeper there. I don't know. The freedom, you know. I live in a community where the mores are a little different, you know, where the consequence of having sex is not necessarily a child or that I have to go through the motions. When I have a partner that's, that's hooked up with what I am on the same wavelength, we understand that it's just sex. Like if I said, hey, let's go play tennis. You know, so the heteronormative the idea that romance and sex have to be in the same yeah. basket does not right. labor you. Yeah. It doesn't burn it doesn't. you. No, it doesn't. Okay. It doesn't. But I'm always very surprised by, for instance, <clears throat> when I get attracted to some, because you know this, in my relationships, a lot of times I fall in love with people who are not my type. My type okay, tends to pause. be the We dated draggers. for a minute, so this is going to be a conversation later. It's actually about 45 seconds, but 
No, one day, it was like a month in, a month in, we looked at each other and we're like, we're supposed to be friends. Yeah, yeah, that's what we're supposed to be. And well, then everything was fine. Here's the funny thing, though. Everybody else recognized it before we did. Oh, shit. We I wish busted. I hadn't brought that up. We were busted. <laughs> yeah, I just remember us trying to have a two-person bath and a one-person bath. I just still, and I love that. Okay, wow. I love that. It just hurt. I but love anyway. <laughs> well, because you were on the faucet end, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love that, and I still love that. That's like, like one of, a great memory. But I have a lot of memories like that. I have a lot of memories of great of great sex, whatever it was. With the meth, it didn't come. With the meth, it's the illusion that we are about to have great sex, and especially in the like lagging days, months, weeks, whatever year even of my addiction, I would be with sometimes with a person that I did have a connection with. And as soon as that drug went into my brains, the connection was lost. It was lost. And I know this is all about sex, but there were times when, I, and I've told people this, just because everyone in the room is naked does not mean sex is happening. No, that's true. Everyone's off in their own little like vortex of whatever they're off in. And, um, you know, it was the exact opposite. I think in the very beginning, alcohol and all kinds of drugs were about connection for me or seeking a connection. And in the end, they were all about disconnection. Okay, see, that's not how I experienced it. I, well, maybe idealistically I was seeking connection through getting high or drunk or whatever, but I was also seeking disconnection from myself. So if you, because myself was chattering, it's not okay to be gay, this is dangerous. You are a substandard male because you are gay. I was trying to disconnect from that dialogue through the use of drugs and alcohol. Some people use sex to disconnect mm -hmm. from that dialogue. I wasn't able to do that. I had to get loaded. So I can't say that I ever had that experience where it, I was genuinely connected while loaded. Um, it was that voice that I was trying to tame. Matt, I'm going to say. Well, I've had the, the duality because I've had, I mean, I've experienced both the desire to connect through drugs, you know, like having, you know, doing meth and doing G, especially GHB, mm. and especially well, GHB creates, yeah? You overdosed? How many times do you want to hear about? Well, I know once was almost here. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it just, it that was, especially particularly that drug, you know, which is kind of like dubbed the love drug. Yeah. It creates an illusion, and you, you, you know going into it that it's going to be an illusion. Exactly. You know it's yeah. going to be, but you're okay with that. Yeah. Uh, illusion of oh, anticipating the, that. Oh, it's yeah. This person I just met five minutes ago is about to become my husband. Yeah, exactly. And <laughs> and we're gonna have like the most connected, passionate mm -hmm. sex. Mm -hmm. And let me tell you, that often on that drug happens. But then you know, when that drug wears off, it wears off. You just want them out the door, or you yeah. want to be out the yeah. door. Yeah. You know, you you just don't want anything to do with them. Yeah, that's been my experience. Yeah, you invite them to come live with you, which is help because they usually bring everything they own with them anyway, <laughs> and it fits in a backpack. Right. But I've had that experience so many times, and, and even knowing it was illusory, even knowing it was temporary, it didn't dull that. No. But it's a very, very dangerous, dangerous drug. Like I said, I'm a chronic overdose. And a lot of it was mixing stuff, you know, mixing stuff. I'm not a specialist sometimes huh. and uh, it just doesn't mix well with other things it's I'm, not tonic I it's not ginger ale I remember um, when I first got sober I, like, I, I dated a couple of guys early on that were really I still know them um, 
uh, I don't want to use names in this podcast because of the subject matter, but uh, really sweet guys. And we were very comforting and sweet and kind to each other. The sex was not good. Um, it was not exciting because the last sex we had, you know, lasted for three days. Um, and, you know, it would be a parade of people through the apartment mm-hmm. of new people and so on. And, of course, by the third day, you're speaking in tongues and have completely lost your mind. Mm-hmm. But um, but we were coming from there. So, really, I, I just remember with John, this one guy that I dated very early in sobriety, I just remember a lot of sleeping and holding each other. Mm-hmm. And I think we really needed that. I think we both oh, absolutely. needed that. absolutely. We needed to recover from where we had just yeah. come from. Yeah. And and that's um, to that point. That's kind of like, I don't know. Maybe in some of these situations, some of the, you know, some of my sexual partners would be would find it odd, or maybe that was my perception. They'd find it odd that that's kind of what I wanted to do um, on that drug. And they were like, no, let's you know, let's get down to yeah. it. Let's get down to it. But I I was like, you know, I really prefer this part of it. And so that made me think, what is it that I'm really seeking out of this drug? So for as far as the connection, I really was seeking that, but. At the same time, to your point earlier, I was also seeking the disconnection. And there's this term called um, trauma bonding. And it's when, um, kind of like an idea of that is is when you have had a traumatic experience in your past um, that, or, or a series of traumatic experiences, say for example, being called faggot, you know, or which which I'm very surprised that I never was growing up. So I didn't have that particular thing, but there was all always you're not you're not on the same level. You're not good enough, you're not straight enough, you know, that type of thing. And so you're not on the same level. So I think maybe I'm overanalyzing it, but I think that in these situations when I go into these situations uh with drugs, I am both trying to connect and also bonding to that trauma through pleasure. Does that make sense? Bonding to which trauma? Bonding to the trauma of being, being, feeling like I am lesser than. Oh, okay. So you bond to the trauma. The trauma is. Ooh, okay. Yeah, and wow. and this is a real thing. That's you know, hard. there's there's yeah. many there's many different kinds of reactions, um, responses, I should say, to trauma. As far as what I learned when I was in rehab, and um, that's one of them. And that was the one that stuck out to me. It was like, wow. I didn't think that that was something that was possible or something that was, um, you know, that that's just not something that happened. But it is something that's actually very common. Um, and really you know, maybe maybe some of the some of the listeners could, you know, it, it doesn't have to be with sex. It doesn't have to be, you know, you don't have to relive it through sex. You know, it could be relived in in a number of um, situations. But that's really what happened to me. And towards the end of my using it became the sole thing that I was seeking. Wow. I will tell you, in my therapy currently, um, I have this therapist who's very different from the other ones that I've had in my life. Mostly I've had very talky therapy, imagine that. This one, um, Jose, sort of, he's all about helping me, facilitating my exercise in trying to sit with feelings and trying to let the bad feelings happen because all the damage I've done to myself through drugs and alcohol is just one of the examples, um, was an endeavor to run away from my feelings. It, I, I was uncomfortable, so I wanted to change that. And he does a lot of work with, you know, there's sometimes we don't talk much at all of letting the feelings flow through, even though they're uncomfortable, which I find really interesting. And I do think 
it has me curious about my sexuality in a way I've never been before. Um, I feel something shifting there. I can't describe it yet. It's different. Um, it's more positive. But here's the thing, guys. I can still tell that I have an active dose of internalized homophobia working. Um, uh, I have a friend who's a piano player um, who uh, wanted to paint his nails for performance purposes. And, and I decided, oh my God, I'm going to paint my toenails. And, uh, uh, one toenail. And I painted one toenail. And the amount of internalized homophobia that came up, I felt like a little faggot. I felt like half a man. And it really bothered me, so I painted another one. <laughs> and I was like, okay, and I have it on right now. I'm not going to take it off until this doesn't bother me anymore. Wow. I was just like, no. Okay, he just, okay Greg, by the way, <laughs> just noticed my well, uh, it's not copper only, it's, toe. It's not only painted, it's sort of opalescent. Well, it's, I mean, uh, if you're going to go big, if you're going to go, <laughs> go, go big, right? And just so we know, it's one toe. No. Um, Oh, I'm sorry. It's both big toes. <laughs> <laughs> no, because I did the, one, the and I had this. Has been totally I did one, and I felt like my sister had handed me her purse at the mall in 1974, <laughs> and that I was a little, you know, faggot. But let and me so I went, okay, then I'm going to have to paint the other one until this gets better. Let me ask you a question, because this is something that I deal with all the time. I have noticed I would paint my nails. I, when I first came out and came to bars, I was introduced to this. Uh, his name was, real name was Glenn. They called him Lonnie. He looked a lot like Lonnie Anderson. Same beautiful oh, sure. kind of fine blonde hair. And he was wearing women's clothes and looked very much like a woman. I couldn't get over the fact that he was wearing women's clothes voluntarily. Mm -hmm. And this goes back to, I, I don't know, maybe it's like the, the, the not gay shame was like, I, uh, I, I couldn't understand that. And I still, I remember when I was, taught to do laundry. And um, my sister and mother, with my mother, my sister, and I, I remember removing their things from the dryer, my mother's things with barbecue tongs, because they were silky and satiny, and I hated the feeling, I hated the texture. I still, had I been born a woman, I'm convinced, even though I maybe have a heterosexual orientation, I would dress like Rosie the biggest Riveted. gym teacher on the face <laughs> of the planet. I don't get the nail polish. I don't get a lot of, when I, when I came to bars, I'm like, it was just another place where I didn't fit in. I, with, one, of the places, one of the places that I had to uncomfortably confront my own homophobia was um, early on in sobriety, um, uh, if there were drag performers, um, if I said drag queen 30 years ago, if I said that, it was a pejorative. I've grown to love these people, but at first, it made me feel threatened. It made me, if I didn't show some sort of tongue in cheek, uh, if I didn't show some sort of disdain for them, it meant I was not a man, okay? And that was potentially life-threatening when I was growing up. So I couldn't let that be seen. That completely changed. Then I had to have an evolution with trans people. Uh, you remember Michelle from the program? Yes. Michael. Um, there was a man in the program who was I'm sorry, I'm getting all tripped up. Um, he was wonderful. And he, when I met him, was Michael. And he would introduce himself at meetings as, I'm a 50-year-old black man and with tits, tits, and I look good. And I look good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he made me fall in love yeah. with him. And he became her. He became Michelle. Mm -hmm. And he passed away a while back. I don't know. Probably about five years ago. Okay. Maybe four or five back. years ago. But I know that he died having realized who he really felt he was. And it 
knowing people and getting past the homophobic responses that I had built in from my upbringing, when you really focus on an individual, that stuff starts to fall, fall away. When you start having a relationship with people, that starts to fall away. What I'm wondering is, is it do we need to have a better relationship with ourselves so that we accept ourselves as being exactly the way whatever God you believe in made us? How do we do that work? Well, how about when it relates to sexual attraction? So, for example, um, you know, this conversation is making me think about what is, you know, sexual ideals, sexual, you know, types. You types. Mean? Yeah. Um, Those have gotten me into a lot of uh, yeah. My type is really pretty men who don't like me. Well, okay. So, <laughs> so I'm thinking to myself, you know, what traditionally, what have I been attracted to? And historically speaking, it's been the more traditionally masculine types. And I'm wondering, you know, through this conversation, whether or not that is a result of, partially a result of internalized homophobia, in that here, I have this mate, I have this partner, look at him, look how quote-unquote straight he is. Virile. Uh, and, yeah. and that makes me, by proxy, just as... I will tell you, you have perfectly articulated what attracted me to the men that I went after the hardest. Yeah. The ones that I, and, and I, and those relationships became very addicty to me. They became very addictive to me because this person, this external person, was supposed to be making up for something I felt I lacked. Yeah. And so when those things ended, it was like, a, because I had adopted a part of them as myself, a part of myself got ripped away and I was left bleeding on the floor. And still to this day, I, I don't find myself nearly as attracted, you know, I'm, I'm speaking broadly, nearly as attracted to, to men who, uh, who exhibit more traditionally feminine characteristics as I do, you know, those which are traditionally considered masculine characteristics. And I don't know, I don't know if that would have been different if my experience growing up with experiencing gay shame yeah. was different. I bet it would be. Now I will tell you what's happening there. And guys, I wanted to force this into wellness. I wanted to go to therapy for exactly 40 sessions and be fine. That's not what's happened because Get we your have money to, back. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. They, should have, they should have told you before. Get your money back. Never show vulnerability around, around two queens. <laughs> Drunk or sober, they are vicious. vicious. God, these girls. Anyway, <laughs> girls, girls are both pretty. Now, um, I'm going to have to cut that out because it's sex and Who else can we have? I thought anyway. this was the splendid table. Oh. I'm going to pack my knives <laughs> or sharpen them, whatever the case may be. Whatever the case. I um, what was I saying before you? <laughs> your therapy, therapy. Oh, it's a forty forty you seconds. Me. Your ineffective uh, therapy. Oh, Go ahead. what I started, what I started realizing, <laughs> uh, just as I like, I just realized I don't like you, Greg. Um, it's all an evolutionary There's process. So many dislike. Her. So many. <laughs> no, um, I love you very much. But the um, what I have realized is that visceral sexual attraction, which is just raw attraction, chemical, almost, it's very addicty feeling to me. It's like that, that thing, that, that physical response, all physical, very little thinking is going on. Um, that response is one thing, but 
as I have aged and as I have had those relationships and realized that none of them worked, and by the way, once you've had them for about a month, they don't fix you anymore. And then you're just left with the bill. Um, but <laughs> they're very expensive. Very pretty men are very expensive. Anyway, um, uh, what I've started realizing it, huh? Parts alone. I mean, please, <laughs> right? Never mind the maintenance. <laughs> um, <laughs> the, um, what has started to creep into that space, and it's not the same visceral attraction thing, is finding someone interesting. I have started to find people interesting and I'm realizing that's starting to become, hey, he'd actually be nice in bed. And it's a combination. It's uh, it's shifting. It's just taking a long time for me. But is this is this true for you? I'm also starting starting to find, like the real kind of the real beauty in those again. I I use the word traditional traditional masculine and feminine qualities, like a nice balance between the two, uh, which is. You know, my favorite thing about being gay is that I look a little bit like a linebacker, uh-huh. and I know every Sondheim lyric. Yes, and I <laughs> dance like a can-can dancer at times. No. Okay, they're both agreeing with each well, other. Well, on the pom-poms. Okay, <laughs> I love holding both of those things in one person. I love that. Yeah. I love. You were talking about the freedom that that being gay gives you. That's how I experience that. Is I love that both traditionally masculine and tradis- traditionally feminine traits exist within mm-hmm. me. Absolutely. And by the way, they also exist within straight people. Yeah, yeah everybody. Everybody. Yeah. But I also don't think I mean, we're talking about that whole I mean, I'm a, someone once said oh, you're a small G gay and capital H homosexual. I'm actually an all caps homosexual. Um, <laughs> what does that mean? Because it means that like, for instance, when I first came out and I found out that shopping was actually a sporting activity. <laughs> I don't want to go shopping. I mean, I felt like a Going out with my friends, same age, same peer group, going out with a bunch of gay men to the Broadway at the time, or Bullocks, was boring to me. I wanted to like sit down and like sulk like I did with my mother buying dresses. And they were buying dresses, I just like, there were certain things I didn't connect to. Drag was another thing. And I had a problem with drag and drag queens initially because I thought they were the brush that I was being painted, the big brush that I was also being painted with. If you're a gay man, I'm watching Soap, the first season I got the DVD, or I watched years ago. Here's the confusing message. Billy Crystal's one of the first openly gay people on, a, on TV. Uh, but he's gay, but then decides he's going to have a sex change to be with his boyfriend, and then decides to experiment with the female nurse, and then becomes... I'm like, these are, for, these are very different dynamics and very different things going on. And the whole drag queen thing was I thought, that's the brush I'm being painted with. That has nothing to do with my life. You know, I mean, I'm super, the super rich have nothing to do with my life. That kind of, you know, that kind of, that expression of being gay or drag or whatever has nothing to do with my life. I now have an appreciation for it, but I used to very much resent the fact that it's like, that when they saw me, if, if somebody knew that I was gay, like, oh, well, you know, you people. Hmm. What does your appreciation you for it now look like? My appreciation for it now looks like what my appreciation for any other art form would be. I love, I'm not an arty, creative type person. So when I can see someone take something and make something with them, whether they happen to be the clay themselves and their dresses and their makeup, that I can sort of appreciate the glitz and the glam. 
But I've also separated that from being gay because I thought we were all being herded into this one corral. Mm -hmm. And that's not me. It never has been me. Um, and that, because it you. isn't, I thought, well, that's my, just my homophobia. What if it's just a personal choice? What if it's personal where, preference? Where drag is concerned, um, you know, at first my reaction to it was completely homophobic. Then I did start to appreciate it as an art form, which it most certainly is, and a really difficult one at that. But over the last several years, what I have started to appreciate about it is those are some really strong human beings who are willing to say, fuck you, you don't get to scare me anymore. Oh, yeah. You don't get to scare me anymore. Yeah. And by the way, that's a traditionally masculine point yeah. of view. These, these broads can fight. Yeah. They're, they are so strong in so, in so many ways that I admire that it really oh, made me fall in absolute, love with Absolutely, yeah. no, I, I, and I've always felt that. Like, I mean, you know, I'm sorry, to put on heels and dress and go out there like that, that takes balls, that takes oh, balls. Oh, I always said I'm not going to do drag until five of my friends will be the Steel Magnolias with me and we carry a coffin. But anyway, that's just, I, I, I would not, neither of us are good drag queens. <laughs> we would be really bad drag queens. I would make such an ugly woman, oh my God, oh my God. Um, so, Matt, where do you think, can you find your internalized homophobia? Like, do you recognize it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, what does it look like? What does it sound like? Um, what does the voice say? Sure. Oh, God. <laughs> no, beep, beep. Yeah. Uh, well... You know, I've shared this story with you. Uh, you know a lot about you know my past in terms of um, in terms of trying to look a certain way. Oh yeah, I've um, done that. So you know, I've spent years. I spent years on steroids. I spent a lot of times, uh, a lot of time trying to appear as if I were straight. You know, like a like you used the word virile earlier. Mm -hmm. That. Um, Hyper masculine. Right. Yeah. And even in social situations today, even in social situations today, when I first meet somebody, it's my voice isn't here. It's a little bit here. It's not here. It's a little bit here. So you drop your voice a little. Yeah. Not um, intentionally. Not intentionally. It just happens. It's a habit. It's, yeah. So Roots that's what that looks to. That's what that looks like. So, um, and then when I start to get to know somebody, you know, it starts going up here, and then yeah. we start to like, hey, what's up? <laughs> and then, and then you know, you know, it goes to off the charts. Yeah, sure. So, um, it's a reservation. I feel, you know, like I feel oh. that when I go into a social situation, the internalized homophobia, it, it's like if I were to bring out this part of me right away, oh God, you know, hmm. You know, let's 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 take a let's let's take a step back from him, um, and that's me just kind of like, I'm just brainstorming right now of what what that looks like. But I think to a large degree that's true, um, and that's that says right there that that's very deep seated. You know, it's very that internal. Do you have that? Um, you know what I'm thinking. I don't know why I'm thinking. Remember back in the old days, the old days back for digital, personal ads would say things like. No fats, no femmes, yeah. no whatever it was. Why did I hear phonies? But anyway. Something like that. Something like that. And it was... Or it was mask musk, you know, like right, yeah. masculine, masculine only. Yeah. Masculine. 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 I love it. This wasn't even that generic. Way back then it was no fats, femmes, or something. I can't remember what the third one was. 
Um, and I always thought that's that's it was that's fake. really insulting. It's yeah. really insulting. But it's interesting that you said you try to be more straight looking. What I've tried to embrace is does masculine have to be straight? Because here's was the big revelation for me when I came out, very first gay pride that I ever went to. I saw not the hypermasculine versions of men that a lot of the gay, a lot, a lot of the leather men were trying to be and to embrace. I saw guys that you would see on the street and never know that they were gay. And I was like, okay, good, they exist, because I didn't know that. I thought you could spot us from miles away. And I think I had the same experience as you did growing up. I wasn't the gay kid in school. I was the weird kid in school, yeah. but that the gay kid in school fell to poor Tony, who wore a pink muscle shirt in ninth grade. Don't know what he was thinking, but whatever. I mean, that was <laughs> obvious. Um, so I didn't have that to fall back on. I mean, I, when I hear people's stories of, I was called fag and I was called, I wasn't called those things. So, I, so that's I don't relate to a lot of that kind of stuff. I didn't hang out with the girls in high school, but I didn't hang out with the jocks either. You know, because I couldn't throw a ball worth shit. They didn't know that, but you know, I just didn't want to hang out. Luckily, alcohol came along in sixth grade, seventh grade, and I was just fine. I was just fine. So perhaps that short-circuited something or alleviated something. The alcohol alleviated something way back when. But I've always, it's interesting because I remember there used to be this button that people wear that says, what the hell is straight acting? Or what the hell is straight looking? Mm. And to me, it's like, I don't see anything wrong with men who are just the guys, you know? The guys who are the mechanics. And when I found out there were gay mechanics and gay fighter pilots and gay, all this other stuff. And gay cops and gay, I mean, real ones, not ones that, you know, the spike. Um, I was like, that was more self-affirming to me than anything else. Because you talked about being a substandard male, mm -hmm. right? Feeling like a substandard male. I think I had some of that, but I don't think it was associated or linked with being gay specifically. It was in my abilities to do certain things. Um, so I really don't know, but I mean, I've always, I remember that moment. I mean, because I don't know, growing up as a gay kid, I don't know how you felt, but there were times I thought I was the only one. I didn't even hear the term until I was in like fifth or sixth grade or fourth grade or whatever it was. Um, I remember going home and saying, a kid at school called me Gay J, and I told my mother that I was probably in uh, elementary school. And um, uh, she said, do you know what gay means? And I said, no. And she said, it's when boys like other boys. That's not you, is it? And I said, from your tone, I'm going to say no. <laughs> and she said, good, then there's not a problem. Wow. Um, subtext. Hmm. It was me. I knew it yeah. was me ever yeah. since I saw Ron Ely in the trailer for the Doc Savage movie when I was seven and, um, and knew I was wired differently. And so the subtext was a big problem. So I, I, I got the clues very, very early on. I want to shift for a second and just ask you guys. I will tell you, I, given that I can't rewrite my childhood and I can't rewrite my wounds, they're always going to be mine. I am grateful to my experience with meth because it brought me to my knees in a way that forced me to adopt a humility, um, that forced me to adopt or practice a humility or strive for a humility 
um, that I would not have had otherwise. And it was a humility that I that could not have happened if I hadn't been shattered. And I don't know what else would have shattered me. So in that way, I'm very grateful to have had my life driven into the ground by addiction that was brought on by internalized homophobia. I'm convinced of it. What's your version, your perspective? If, I don't care if it's completely different. What's your perspective of that in your own lives? I, um, I think perhaps maybe a long time ago that would have been my case, and I've been grateful for it. Had I found that out and then gotten sober and stayed sober, found it would have out. been... Sorry. Huh? Found what out? Found any sort of a spiritual breakthrough or anything. For the, or being shattered completely through it. Sure, okay. I think it would have been helpful. What I found, because I've been in recovery, around the recovery community since 1990, I've had seven and a half years of sobriety twice. I currently, tomorrow, will have six years. So what I found is that all I learned in going out was that dogs are bad, okay? Dogs are bad, okay. Yeah. That's all I learned. It did not propel me forward. Um, it just took me, and you've described this before, literally like a dog with a rag doll in its mouth, shaking it every single time. So I don't think my lessons from it were learned by my experiences with it in the past, say, 15 years. What about you, Matt? Would you trade your experience so far? No, I wouldn't. Um, I think that, you know, it's been painful. You know, it is painful. It's yeah. extremely painful. Um, but <clears throat> I'm not somebody, <laughs> I'm not, I've had like very unorthodox career and just way of living in general. You know, I don't work a nine to five. I don't, I'm not, I'm not straight. I don't fit into the American, you know, model of the white picket fence and the 2.5 kids. So, <clears throat> so, Having done things like differently and having um, the experience, obviously, I never, when I was a kid, never dreamed that I would be an addict. I never, you know, sat on, you know, in front of the TV and was like thinking, oh, I can't wait to do crystal meth. <laughs> and I'm like, I can't. Well, but, the commercials were so subtle. Right, though. right. <laughs> so it, it, this is something that caught me by surprise. And, um, and so it doesn't, but now in retrospect, it doesn't surprise me that that was my trajectory um, and in that sense because it's not something I planned for you know it's it's something that has definitely it's definitely like opened my eyes to as you said being a slightly more humble person um, trying to just open my eyes to like start to try to do the right thing because um, and at least in my particular recovery program, that's how I stay sober. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it has helped, you know, to, to a large degree. But I think above all, what it's taught me is that, uh, and, and this is why I think the biggest reason why I wouldn't give it a, like, tra trade my experience is that I've been a perfectionist my whole life. I've been somebody who has had to get it right to win. Mm -hmm. And I haven't ever been able to, quote, win at sobriety. You know, like... Some people would say, well, if you, you win by just not picking up a drink or a drug, right? That's how, that's how you win. But my experience, similar to yours, Greg, has been one of relapse. And <clears throat> through beaten down over and over and over and over again, while I see 
some of my peers, so to speak, um, quote unquote, get it mm-hmm. the first time yeah. is something that really broke me down and said, Matt, okay, you don't need to be perfect. You don't need to be perfect. You just need to get up and try again. That sounds a little cliche, but it's the truth. And you what just you're talking about makes me feel, to borrow from your expression, substandard male, apart from that, makes me feel substandard human. Like, okay, why didn't I, I got the same messages these people did. What the hell is the matter with me? You know, so my looking at myself as def- defaulted and or, or faulty and broken in certain places hasn't necessarily been associated with the gay stuff. It's been associated with other stuff. Mm-hmm. I just happen to be a gay man. Last question. So, kids growing up today who are like just just about to hit puberty, um, their whole lives. They will have lived, when I say this, I mean American kids. They will have grown up in a country where um, part of the story is if they are gay, they can grow up and get married and they have the same rights as straight couples. It's going to be something that's foreign to them to think about a time when that wasn't so. They're growing up in a post-Will and Grace world. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think they're going to carry our scars? I hope not, because I, I, I feel the same way as people who, when I read about segregation and about racial stuff, yeah. even though it's still happening, it's not happening as, I'm still like, I even ask people who are from the South, I'm like, did you ever experience that? Did anybody actually use the N-word in front of, it's like, oh yeah, like, because I never experienced that personally. You know, I'm from the Pacific Northwest. I'm not from areas where that would have even been okay. So, and I'm just, it's, it's offensive and it is foreign. Um, so I'm hoping that, the whole anti-gay thing is as foreign to them. Homophobia, I mean, having you know, a redneck in a truck yell faggot, that's not going to go away maybe ever. But knowing that that is the minority yeah. has got to be tonic right. to these young people's yeah. souls. Because yeah. when I grew up, it was clearly the majority who felt that way, who were the, the guys in the trucks yelling faggot. That was the majority. Um, what about you, Maddie? You're closer to that generation than we are. <laughs> well, I think there's there's other issues that are that are may take precedence. For example, you know, the proliferation of social media and what happens on so- social media and what it does to oh, sure. you know what it is doing to g- new generations. You know, it's um, the public wounding that happens. Yeah, we can't we can't predict how that will go. You know, we, we there's no way to predict it. Not but, well. But but it doesn't look <laughs> lo- right. Well. It doesn't look it like it doesn't look good. Socialization is So you're saying that though the 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 homophobic damage, the homophobia damage might be replaced with this new kind of like public well, they public shaming and purity yeah. tests and cancel culture and all that kind of stuff. I mean, I, I think it, it's. I'm so glad I'm fifty something now and can eventually just move to a cabin in the woods, in like in probably in seven years. But growing up, that's always how to, a horror movie starts. You know that, right? Okay. <laughs> but I can't even imagine growing up in this society where you have to watch every single thing you say, every move you make. Being human is about making mistakes. Being human is about evolving and learning that certain things were wrong, certain attitudes were wrong. Like the attitude that I used to have towards drag queens and the, the resentment that I had that I was being painted with a similar brush. And I know now that even though that might have had some veracity at the time, 
I'm confident in myself to know that I'm my own person, I'm my own individual. Yeah. So yeah, I think it's I think to- society today is so toxic. We're living in a really toxic time, and I just don't think the homophobia is really going to be a big part of the conversation. I hope it's not going to be a big part of the conversation because now we've in events we're looking at gender roles and gender diversity, gender fluidity, all this other stuff that just completely escapes me. But I have respect for it and I understand it. I have like that Lonnie that I told you about years ago. I understand now that many years ago that person was probably not just a drag queen all the time. That person was probably transgender who did not have the resources that they would have had today to be a transgender person. Because in talking to that person, you you would realize there's nothing quote unquote male about this person at all. I mean, they were obviously, obviously a very female and feminine soul. Matt, in closing, what, what would a healthy sexual relationship with another person feel like to you? What would it feel like? It would, what would it feel? Feel like. So are, are we talking emotions? Yes. Um, safe? Okay. Is that an emotion? Uh, there's an emotion tied to that. Yeah. Uh, it would, I don't know I, that I can answer that off the cuff, but I can tell you more like what it would look like. Um. Go on. <laughs> I think that's part of the problem, but go on. <laughs> well, I, I, I mean... Okay, so let me try to tie it to that. It would involve communication, a lot of communication, which okay. is not something that, we, it's not something that's quote unquote sexy. Like, you know, like we'd, we wanna, you know, we wanna let it happen it's organically not porn and natural. sexy. <laughs> right, which unfortunately a lot of people, yeah. myself yeah. included, Model still, toxic thing. Still, still, you know, connect to toxic I will say, I will say this. When I came out to my mom, when I was about 16 years old, um, they, they found out, my parents found out because they saw that I was looking at porn, you know, on the internet, and she confronted me about it, and when I told her, yeah, I, th- I think it's true that I, you know, that I am gay, um, and sh- her main problem, her main issue, the first thing that came out was with the images that I was looking at because she said, I just don't want you to think that this is a realistic expectation of what sex should be. Too late. (laughs) I should have listened, heeded the warning. I should have have heeded the warnings then because, but you you can't be told anything. You have to experience it yourself. You have to make your own mistakes. You have to do it. I used to go to the spike at noon thinking that all the men from the cult hairy chested calendar would be there on a Monday at noon. I mean, that kind of like, yeah, yeah. it's not life. It's, it's not real life. It's not like that. So, so to, Greg, go on. Oh, just to, just to finish this up, it's like I have a lot of work to do on that question yeah. because because of that experience, because I didn't wasn't able to process and heed that quote-unquote warning. And so my view of sex is very much still tied into a sexual ideal instead of what, um, like an ideal that is maybe presented through porn, maybe pre- presented through media, mm-hmm. media, mass media. This is, this is, you know, the idealized man. This is what sex would look like in that situation. Um, so I don't know. I'd have to spend more time thinking about that, but it's a good question. What would you say, Greg? What, is, what does a healthy sexual relationship look like to you? I think I've experienced it. I think I've experienced it a couple times sober. 
Uh, and it's, you know, again, it's, it's not the sex act. It's more, it's intimacy. You know, I mean, it's intimacy. It's being able to like, I'll lie on that couch naked, you lie on that couch naked, you might fart, we'll watch TV, I'll fill the pillow at you. That kind of, getting back to your term, safety and intimacy and comfort. Comfort, and not only comfort, because that ideal of, wow, this is just gonna be so hot, you know, is, I, I don't think it's real. And I think it's a story that's been told to us and that we bought into because it's, you know, it's the shiny new toy. We, we, it's presented to us through images of porn. And we're like, okay, well, that's what, that's not what it looks like all the time. Have you read The Word Less Traveled? I've read, no. The author Peck says that basically falling in love and all the sexual attraction stuff is a chemical trick, a biological chemical programming meant to make us pair and mate. No, limerence. And then, yes. It's called limerence. Yes, and that, that it always fades. Yeah. You know, it, it all, it's like, the movie is never the same as the trailer. No, at all. At all. At all. It's it's kind of like disappointing to to realize though that we've been fed a lie. You know. You know, we got over Santa. We can get over this. It just takes some time. It does take some time. Well, I hope there's no toddlers listening to your podcast. <laughs> okay, if there is, I want their name and address because those are some fucked up parents. Seriously. Greg and Matt, thank you so much for opening up with me tonight, and I really appreciate you being willing to talk on the Grinning Idiot podcast. Thank Thanks, you, Jay, Jay, you big grinning idiot. <laughs> you want lively conversation, we will always provide it here at the Grinning Idiot podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in this week. And um, if you want to follow us, you can find us on Stitcher or Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, pretty much anywhere that you can subscribe, you can find us. If you want to send us an email, our email address is howdy at grinningidiot.com. That's H-O-W-D-Y at grinningidiot.com. This is Jay Floyd. I want to thank you again for joining us this week, and there will be plenty more where this came from. Welcome to a new decade. Here we go, 2020. Now get out there and misbehave, people. Bye for now.